Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, an illiberal alliance in Central Europe, Thailand's craze for haunted dolls and how to sniff out the perfect Pinot. But first, the brawl begins was our cover line. With the Iowa caucuses on the horizon, moderate voters across America are in disbelief at the state of the US presidential race as non-establishment contenders are vociferously throwing their weight around with no sign of quieting down. The muscle-bound rivals have entered the ring. The verbals are at fever pitch. It is the world's greatest electoral tournament. It is not going to plan. In the blue corner, Hillary Clinton, as much part of the establishment as the Washington Monument, is under pressure from Bernie Sanders, a crotchety senator from Vermont who calls himself a democratic socialist. While over in the red corner, the tenacious moderates seem to be slipping out of the ring. The sensible squad on the right, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, John Kasich et al., have been impaled by the gimlet jibes of Ted Cruz and swamped by the sprawling, tumultuous diatribes of Donald Trump. Our leader suggested an underlying reason for all this upheaval. In America, outsiders channel popular anger into a political duopoly. In Europe, Mr Trump and Mr Sanders would have their own protest parties, which inevitably struggle to win high office. And a warning punch straight between the eyes, as if trying to knock some sense into voters. If they win the primaries, they will control political machines designed to catapult them into the White House. As we lambasted the state of the American presidential race, we also bemoaned a different kind of populism across the Atlantic. As an article in our Europe section explained, the unrelenting migrant crisis is feeding fear in the East and fueling an alliance of illiberalism. Anti-migrant sentiment has unified the Visegrad group of Hungary, Poland, Slovakia and the Czech Republic, and they are taking advantage of anti-migrant fervour to implement an illiberal agenda on other fronts too. Hungary's Viktor Orban has been leading the calls of callousness. Fidesz, Mr Orbán's party, pioneered Europe's illiberal wave. When it came to power in 2010, it limited the constitutional court's powers, packed it with cronies and introduced a new constitution. Poland's freshly elected government, meanwhile, appears to be reading from the same manual. The government is dead against any further European deals to allocate refugees among member states. Meanwhile, since taking power in November... Peace has sacked the heads of the security and intelligence services, weakened the constitutional tribunal and packed it with its own supporters, and passed a new media law that lets it install loyalists to head the public radio and TV channels. So two peas in a populist pod room for any more? Politics in Slovakia and the Czech Republic are a bit different, but in both countries politicians have jumped on the issue of refugees. 
Over in our Asia section, mythologies were blooming even more ominously with a superstitious craze for haunted dolls. Payao, a middle-aged lady perched on a stool, has just finished assembling a plastic doll, which she has dressed in silk and adorned with pink lipstick. This is no benign Barbie, however, but rather a... Look Tep, or Child Angel, a factory-moulded moppet which some believe can be imbued through a blessing with the spirit of a child. Look Tep are increasingly being seen out and about in Bangkok, the capital, with their grown-up owners who feed, water and dress them in the hope of receiving good fortune in return. But opposition to these little angels has been following in their wake and it's rising. With Thai Smile, a budget airline declaring that passengers who object to stewards shoving their little darlings into overhead lockers may now buy them tickets of their own. A buffet restaurant has announced that Look Tep may dine at children's rates, though patrons must pay for any uneaten food. And one person's omen of goodwill is another's nemesis. Aviation authorities have realised that nervous travellers may not want to sit next to another passenger's haunted mannequin. Dolls at least know their place, but inanimate objects stealing our jobs is a distinct possibility. An article in our finance section reported a study that suggested that jobs in poor countries may be more vulnerable to the robotic renaissance. Machines are mastering ever more intricate tasks, such as translating texts or diagnosing illnesses. Robots are also becoming capable of manual labour that hitherto could be carried out only by dexterous humans. And while high-tech development may be higher in wealthier nations, the proportion of threatened jobs is much greater in poorer countries. 69% in India, 77% in China and as high as 85% in Ethiopia. And that's because jobs in these places are, in general, less skilled. Rich countries have more of the sorts of jobs that are harder for machines to replicate. Those that require original ideas, creating advertising, or complex social interactions. And change may be smoother where less capital is tied up in historical ways. Driverless taxis might take off more quickly in a new city in China, for instance, than in an old one in Europe. Our business section, meanwhile, echoed sentiments of technological foot-dragging with an article about adaption or the lack of it in the art world. Two great auction houses whose roots stretch back far in history have only strengthened their hold through the ages. But might their squabbling and pride leave them mired in the past as the trade moves on without them? Between them, Sotheby's and Christie's, the Western world's two largest auction houses, have been in business for 522 years. And in many ways, their age is starting to show. They display many of the characteristics of old men, a gouty gait that makes them slow to adapt, and a fixation on ancient rivalries that leads them to butt heads repeatedly rather than focus on reviving their businesses. So modernisers are calling for change. Under pressure from activist shareholders who want to see a better return on capital, Sotheby's has made a high-profile, if costly, effort to reduce its headcount by 5% over the past few months. Christie's, too, has been quietly shedding staff for over a year. But neither feels it can afford to cut back too far for fear of weakening itself compared with the other. But they risk being stuck feuding in their bubble, gazing out at an evolving market. In the past decade, the contemporary art world has ballooned, with new fairs, biennials and exhibition spaces opening everywhere. 
an increasing amount is being traded in undisclosed private deals arranged by brokers. It wasn't that long ago that secretive deals were needed just to get your hands on some booze as well as lofty art. Flicking through to our books and art section, we find a review glancing back to a past where prohibition was all the rage in America, or at least causing it. When the 18th Amendment banning the sale of alcohol was passed in 1919, it was targeted at the saloons where men gathered after work for beer and conversation. I believe that alcoholism threatens the destruction of the white race, said Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard University. The drinking moved swiftly underground. Neighbourhood saloons closed, home distilleries opened and drinking moved underground to homes and speakeasies and even athletic clubs. The protests of the working classes, no beer, no work, went unheard amid the paternalistic zeal of high-minded and often wealthy Protestants. Thankfully, someone saw sense soon enough. Prohibition ended in 1933, during the first year of Roosevelt's presidency. It's time the country did something about beer, the new president declared. And so it did. 83 years on, and we finish quite aptly with some guidance on making wine. Pinot Noir is a famously finicky grape, but an article in our science section reported on a method for perfecting the process from vine to glass. Got right? The thin-skinned grapes can produce some of the world's finest wines. The secret? Plucking the grapes from the vine at just the right time. Winemakers typically depend upon testing the level of sugar to determine if their berries are ready, but that is not terribly accurate. A team from Oregon State University took it upon themselves to help, using a technique called Aroma Extract Dilution Analysis to study aromatic compounds in the grapes. The kit was also fitted with a sniffing port for researchers to smell the compounds as they were released. Their analysis might provide one way to determine the best time to harvest. For their part, wine buffs will keep settling the argument the old-fashioned way, with a sniff straight from the glass. And who could blame them? I'm off to do some research myself. I'm Anne McElvoy, that was our tasting menu. And if you're hungry or indeed thirsty for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.